This is episode 56 of the Landscape Photography Show, and on this podcast, we have a little bit of a different guest. We have Alan Shapiro joining us, and I'd been introduced to Alan's work previously, just somebody that I follow on social media, but I had never really listened to Alan talk, and I had never really dove deep into his background in photography and in the creative arts, really. So when I did read up his bio on his website, I knew I wanted to get Alan on after I was on a panel with him on visualwilderness.com. Now, Alan has a lot of background in the creative arts, in advertising, in photography, having a 10-year career in photography thus far. So he has a lot of different insight on a lot of different parts of being a creative and living that life. So I know that this episode is going to prove very beneficial for anybody who, number one, wants to do anything with their photography on the business side, but also we really dove into what it means to take chances in being a creative uh, and what it means to take chances and being vulnerable about trying something new, a new technique in photography. And if you know the podcast and if you've been listening for a long time, you know when I heard those words, I had to dive deep in what Alan was talking about. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Alan Shapiro. Alan and I were introduced not too long ago. Actually, we were on a webinar panel together for Visual Wilderness and I was just pretty much awestruck with some of Alan's work that he shared during that presentation. And it's so funny when you get onto a webinar and a panel, you're so engaged with the teaching part. But I found so much benefit of being on that panel and learning from everyone who was on it. You know, Alan Shapiro, Colby Brown, Kate Silvio were also on that panel. Uh, and, and immediately when it was over, I emailed Alan and said, hey, you, you need to come on the podcast. And I'm excited, Alan, that you are here talking with us now and joining us on the podcast. Yeah, this is this is incredible. I, you know, and it's mutual admiration society convened there because, you know, I, I hadn't known of you. I'd known of you, but I hadn't taken a deep dive into your work until after the podcast, after the 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 video that we did and and i was blown away as well so kudos to you and you know yay <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks man well, why don't we get started with kind of how i asked everybody to dive into their story is how you got started in photography and what that looked like for you okay so uh i i have spent my entire life as an advertising person as a storyteller uh I grew up and in the world of advertising, ended up as a chief creative officer within the Omnicom network, which is one of the largest networks in the world. And as you might imagine, that becomes, the higher you go, a little bit stressful. And a really good friend of mine, as you know, who was a very well-known photographer who was asked to remain nameless because they get peppered with questions all the time, uh, gave me a camera as a gift and said, you need to just get out and, and do something creative, like use a different part of your brain. So I did, and you know, I was 
living just outside Manhattan and commuting into Manhattan. So every day I would pack my camera and walk through the city. I, I ended up leaving an hour before I needed to be at work every day just so I could spend an hour a day shooting, which led to an hour at the tail end processing. And so starting there, needless to say, it became street photography and a little bit of street portraiture. But as that evolved, um, I just started expanding. You know, uh, living in New York, we have the incredible zoo, and I travel a lot for work, so it turned into forays into uh, animal photography, and then what, what I would call sort of travel tourism photography, you know, just documenting everywhere I would be, and then also going into gardens and finding the, the beautiful little things that were just surrounding all of us every day that I just kind of walked over. You know, I wasn't really a flower guy until I started getting a little bit uh, filled with the despair of some of the stories that I was hearing as I was doing the street portraiture, because I also love to talk to people. So that's where it all came together. It was like sort of pictures and using a totally different part of my brain. And I found that it was a unbelievable escape from my day job. Like it blew my mind how, how relaxing and zen-like the practice of photography became for me. And like I said, I like to talk. And so I started sharing the story of this journey of mine. And here we are. I still love talking about this passion that we all, that we all share. Had you ever used a practice like that to, to engage the creative side of your brain before? Um, there are many, many ways to brainstorm with individual, you know, with yourself <laughs> or with groups of people, but nothing, nothing like the practice of photography for me. So, you know, I find I, I have to delve, delve into the science of it because I'm certain it uses a totally different part of my brain than the verbal part. And, and so uh, it, it's, it's unbelievable to me. And I find that, you know, normally the, this aspect of percolation, when you're thinking about a problem that you need to solve, you know, in, in life, this isn't just for creative people, it's anything, you know, if you fill your head with the information, with the, the specific challenge, and then give yourself time to percolate, to just let it sit and simmer and go do something else. But many people find it hard to just let something go. And this is where having a total escape, having something that you can immerse yourself in that is all consuming, lets the different parts of your brain do that percolation process. So I do find that um, I, I am coming up with ideas at surprising points in time, invariably following photo sessions. Like I come back and I'm totally refreshed and I have a different perspective on everything. Do you have a process and, and when those ideas come to mind, do you have a process in jotting those down or, or remembering those? Yeah, thank God for iPhones. I mean, it used to be post-it notes when I was younger because <laughs> I'm of a generation that lived through life before, you know, iPhones and, and the like. Uh, but yeah, it's just, you know, either recording it into my iPhone or going into notes and capturing the ideas. But, uh, you know, literally there'll be times I will drop the camera, you know, to the side, obviously it's on a strap, uh, and, and just start 
start frantically typing. And unfortunately, I'm like a two-finger typer. I'm not, you know, as <laughs> so it's a slow, arduous process. But you know, thank God for spell correct. Or or it's sometimes very funny seeing what the frantic typing results in that has no semblance to what I was actually thinking. <laughs> right? We we've all been there. Uh, autocorrect, you know, is doesn't. Yeah, the thing I mean that that just came to mind. Are you a Seinfeld guy? Totally. Who isn't? Okay. The episode the episode where Jerry has a dream at night and writes down like what he thought was funny in the dream, but he spends the whole episode trying to figure out what that what? was going to be. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's happened a few times. Fortunately not a lot. Uh, so do you have similarities, though, that, that you found going from your work in advertising, bridging the gap over into a creative process like photography? Because it seems like it's two very different paced activities. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there's the aspect of finding something and making something in photography and I think the same thing applies in, in advertising, or let's just call it general storytelling, because if you're a content creator on any level, if you're a filmmaker or a writer, there's, there's the story you want to tell in the narrative. And sometimes it happens just by accident, that serendipitous thing, which is the, the found side of the storytelling or the problem solving. And then there are other times where you literally, you've got a specific problem and you have to solve it, so you need to make up the story. You need to make the image or the commercial or whatever. Um, there are times where you'll find slices of life that, that illustrate the, the theme that you're, you're wanting to put out there. And then there are times you have to literally construct them. So I find the same practice works in photography and I literally force myself to alternate between going out and just being totally open to what life and wherever I'm going is going to present and just finding things. And then there are other times I will literally, before I go out, I will give myself an assignment. Today is all, it's gonna be all about fill in the blank, whatever that is. And I will force myself to, to deliver on that. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't as is life, but it's, it's great practice. For me, it's like visual exercise. Is there one of the two that you're more proud of or have more of a connection to with advertising and photography? Um, I think the making is hmm. it's, it's more time consuming. It's more, it's more craft filled. You know, there's, there's the setup of the scenario there's the posing of the models. There's the wardrobe. It's a bigger team. So it's more, it's more familiar, right? When you make a commercial, you're working with a huge group of people and everyone has a role and, and you know, as, as a creative director and ultimately as a chief creative officer, my job is to find the best people, but to either have that initial spark of an idea and then have everyone help me bring it to life and take it to a place I had thought of. In a more solitary practice like photography, even though there are times, now I don't do sort of fashion photography where those big teams exist, but there are times I will work with models because it's fun. And I, I do like making people do things, you know, either against their will or, or just to see how far we can push a theme. Um, but those don't require 
other people. And so it puts more onus on me. And so as a result, I'm just more proud of what comes of it. Like, oh my God, I was able to do that all by myself. Right? It's, it's surprising. As someone who, who has been a coach a lot because of the size of the teams, to embrace something very solitary is, is really like a different experience for me. And it's incredibly satisfying. Some of the clients that you have worked with, you know, Lockheed Martin, GM, Cadillac, Apple, Bose, Ritz, Carlton, when I read off those names, what do those names mean to you in, in terms of your success? They're, they're people who, those are my photo clients. So let's be clear. Those are people who saw the work that I did with veterans because my dad was a veteran, is a veteran. Um, and I have a particular place in my heart for, for those who have served. And so I spent a lot of time documenting them. And it started at, you know, the, 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 the Veterans Day Parade here in New York, which is the largest in the country. And then led me to trips to Washington. And so that body of work, and again, shared very publicly because I was proud of it and accompanied by the writings, either the stories of the people I would meet or my perceptions of those people, uh, got to got to the folks at Lockheed Martin who called me and said, we, we want you to document veterans for what, what they were calling a thank you campaign. They just wanted to thank people for their service as a huge defense contractor, right? They're, they're sort of faceless and almost have a bad reputation, but they're so proud of the, the, the community that they serve and the gear that they provide that then enables us to be who we are um, and, and as protected as we are. So that made me incredibly proud. When the, the funny thing when Apple called me is they said, we can't tell you what the project is for, but we want to buy four images and it's for global use. And can you quote us a price? And I'm embarrassed. I quoted them a price and the person I was talking to kind of chuckled and said, okay, let's multiply that by four. And then, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. And then, and then, you know, we'll send you the paperwork. And then I saw that it was for the, the launch of the iPhone back, back, uh, you know, a bunch of years ago in 2014, it was the iPhone six that uh, like my head exploded. And, you know, it's, it gets back to, I have had a wonderful career as an advertising guy, but the photography only has been now 10 years that I'm a photographer. And so it still feels like I am just beginning the journey, not, not anywhere near you know, what's happening. And, and I, I gotta tell you, you know, having done Super Bowl commercials and things where, you know, that's what you're really supposed to be proud of. When, when a client calls me and says they want to buy a piece of, you know, a, a piece of photographic art for a wall, let alone a client like General Motors or OnStar when they call, it, it is, it, it's the most satisfying thing I, I can imagine short of the birth of my children. Like it, it is life altering. And I still break into a grin when I think about each of those respective phone calls from them. You know, I'm, I feel incredibly privileged. Why do you think that is? Why do you think photographers get that feeling whenever somebody does want one of their pieces of work? Because it's deeply personal. Because for all of us, 
we, I mean, look, we're living in the golden age of photography, I think. And that's both a blessing and a curse. Everyone in the universe has at least one device that captures images, likely their phone. And so there was a lot of garbage out in the world, or just a lot of everyday, let's not even call it garbage, I shouldn't go there, but there's a, there's a lot of images being created. And so as someone who takes on the role of photographer, like I am a photographer, it puts, it, it ups the, your game a little bit, it puts pressure on you, but as you're, you're walking around and making your art, I think there's always that level of insecurity, which hopefully drives us and doesn't paralyze us, drives us to say, is this, is, is this better than all the other stuff being created? Is this as good as it can be? And so there's always that self-doubt. So then when someone else acknowledges it, it just, you know, it, 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 it's that absolute confirmation of all that you were hoping for. So the personal experience becomes a public acknowledgement. And I think that's, you know, I, I just wish that on everyone. I want to play off that term that you just used, the golden age of photography. What was before golden age? What did that look like? Um, it looked like people who, who had their, you know, regular cameras. And if we go back, you know, before digital, it was, it was film. And so not being a photographer then, like, you know, when I went to art school, because I did, I was a RISD guy, you know, I had my friends who lived in the dark rooms, my photo friends, I, just like I had my fine art painter friends who just always read the turpentine and I, and, you know, we joked that they were going to start for the rest of their lives. Um, so <clears throat> at, we all had our little cameras and whether they were Polaroids, you know, spitting out things that we had to shake or whether the stories we told were in, what is it, 36 frames? Is that, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, right? Um, I don't know that unless you were a professional, you had the commitment to it. We would just grab your camera when your family got together or when there was, you know, an opportunity for you and your friends to go somewhere. But I don't feel like it was as, um, as top of mind as it is now. I mean, we live with our phones in our hands and that allows us to at any point in time when we see something, whether it's seemingly mundane like our meals, like how often are people documenting every aspect of their life? Mm -hmm. We didn't have that ability beforehand. I wasn't going to bring in a big camera. You know, I think the size of mobile devices now makes it easy. Back then, cameras were a little bit larger, a little bit more cumbersome, even, even you know, the, the credit card sized first consumer camera I had when my probably going back 25 years when my first child was born, that was, you know, it was something that I had to force myself to bring with me because it just didn't fit comfortably anywhere, right? So I had to bring a bag and I didn't like bringing a bag. So, so I think you had to be a professional photographer in order to in order to really appreciate the, the constancy that photography presents, now it's just everywhere. Did that answer your question? I feel like that was a very roundabout way. No, it, it definitely did. <laughs> and it, it begs the question of me asking, you know, is the documentation, the ability to do that, why we are living in what you phrase as the golden age currently? Um, 
is the documentation. I think, I think we are just all, and this may be, I have to try and force myself to think back before these past three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not going any place political other than we're living through now <clears throat> a time where we're, we're a little bit less unified. And so I think, I think the act of creating something that makes us smile, let's reduce it to its simplest form. You know, I can pull out a camera and I can take a picture and I can show it to someone and they will smile. And I think that is a very unifying experience. And so whether it's the meal I just had, and you know, I, I, I will mock people who, who shoot every meal, but then I find myself doing it myself, um, or you know, the selfie proud, I just think these are wonderful opportunities to practice a visual art that most people didn't grow up, you know, uh, with formal training in. So we're all students of photography. And, and I think that makes us all happy and you start adding in the social networks and boy, am I divided on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, now we're getting validation, which, you know, blessing and curse. And so I, I think we're, as a, as a culture, we, we need to share more because we're being maybe uh, driven to a little bit more of a divided place of light. How's that for catching my words carefully? Post golden age looks like what? Um, hopefully looks like the, let's see, I'm, I'm trying to think of the historical thing. We had the iron age and then we had the investor post golden age. I think it looks like either a reversion to some of the more classic techniques done digitally, which we're already seeing, but I think people maybe uh, become a little bit more experimental in their practice, uh, or maybe they'll take a break, or maybe if, if I don't know, maybe they'll uh, evolve from photo storytelling to video storytelling. Right? I think it depends on each person's journey. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick to tell you about today's sponsor for the podcast, and that's visualwilderness.com. And I have a lot of courses through Visual Wilderness, and you can go over to my website right now, davidjohnstonart.com and click on the learn tab to see all of my courses. Right now you can get 33% off any of those courses that are listed on there when you use the code David33 during checkout. Now, Alan and I are gonna talk about Visual Wilderness periodically throughout the podcast because we both work with them a lot on some of the things that we do, that being live presentations, webinars, courses, or a year-long subscription. Again, you can go to the Learn tab right now and get all of my courses that I have listed on there on visualwilderness.com that's gonna help you improve your photography and in your post-processing work too. Again, use the code DAVID33 during checkout when you go to davidjohnsonart.com and click on the Learn tab. Let's get back to our talk. 
Let's switch gears a bit here. It, I was looking at your website before we jumped on the call, Alan, and, and I was noticing a, a theme coming up that you are not afraid to try anything creatively when it comes to photography. There are people who give advice to new photographers, and, and it's a question that I've gotten several times of, should you just shoot one thing and master that? Or should you really diversify what you photograph and, and learn that way? Where, where is your stance on that? I think I am I'm definitely in the try everything, see what fits, and then dive into those things that you either that bring you the most personal joy or that bring you the most uh, professional satisfaction and those would be the two uh, you know the for the love of it and for the and for the, the financial benefit of it. so I I like shooting food because I like to cook but um, I shoot a lot of food because I have found lots of local clients who are willing to either pay or trade photos for meals and for me that's just that that's a win-win as a <laughs> anything <laughs> anything for free food right anything for free food but that was that was like okay i like to eat i like to cook let me and i i, I think i might be good at taking pictures of food or at least i might be good at taking some tabletop so let me see if i can push that a little bit like it was a, that was one of those personal challenges so you know Food versus animals versus portraiture versus macro flowers. I mean, they all have their their place in my heart. Some of them have a place in my pocketbook, thankfully, because you know otherwise I wouldn't be able to afford the gear that I that I covet and and dream about every every moment. Let's take this same argument into post-processing. Do you take the same philosophy into post and, and are you willing to diversify your style that way? Um, yes, but I share less of it. And I think it's because I'm insecure or because I am trying to differentiate myself. So the insecurity, like I, I practice what I call creative sketching. So, you know, whether I'm working in Lightroom or Capture One or Photoshop, I'll create multiple copies of something and I will very quickly do a couple of iterations, you know, like sketch it. And then I will give myself, I'll go run and get a cup of coffee or bourbon, depending on the time of day, <laughs> um, and come back and then see which one jumps out at me. And then I will dive into that. So. I'm always seeing what's possible because I, I guess by nature, I'm an experimenter. And as someone who is constantly exposed to all sorts of portfolios professionally, right? Because I'm not only a photographer, but I'm hiring them in my day job, and just like I'm hiring filmmakers and illustrators. So there's, there's you know, an unlimited range of styles that I'm seeing every day. And that for me is, like a little bit of a challenge because then it's like, oh, how do I stand out? How do I get my work to be seen above all these incredible artists and creators who are who are creating differently? So finding that place requires experimentation and that requires pushing myself in the post-processing world. 
I have a lot of stuff that I've never, ever shared. That at some point, someone, maybe, hopefully I'll still be alive, but, you know, maybe my children or my grandchildren will dig out, and I don't know, maybe they'll mount a show at a local coffee shop or library. I don't aspire any greater than that. How much is, is fear, that, that fear of sharing something that you've been working on or trying, do you think inhibiting a lot of photographers for being super over the top creative and, and sharing something new that, that could possibly, you know, set off a domino effect of a new type of style? I think, I think you should force your, everyone should force themselves to, to, consciously and, and actively make big, what I call big glorious mistakes and then share them. And whether you share them with your, your little personal board of directors or advisory panel, or whether you're comfortable enough in your community, wherever that may be to share it bigger, I think, I think it's mandatory, you know, otherwise there's no growth in it. Otherwise, you're just doing the same thing over and over again. So I highly encourage people to, to have a, a monthly day of mistakes and then share them. And acknowledge, this is, I, this is my experimentation. This is, you know, I'm, I'm sharing this and I want you to be, I need this to be a safe space. Or, or, I, or maybe not. It, I guess it depends on how thick within the skins of the people are who are making this decision. You know, I have fairly thick skin coming from, you know, my lifetime working with clients who don't, who don't like everything you do. You only have to have one good idea. Um, but some people are a little bit more sensitive. So I think that's where people need to make that yeah. determination. If I could throw in my, my two cents on it, you know, Alan, I've, I've had several images that have sat on my hard drive for several years. The one that comes to mind was a photograph that I shot in Great Smoky Mountains National Park of a single tree in a field with like smoke coming out of the mountain valleys. And I played with it for probably eight years in post-processing. Uh, and when I finally shared it and told people, you know, this is experimentation, I, I don't really know if I like this or not, it helped people have a strange connection to the photograph in a way that um, made the process more accessible to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and kudos to you for doing that because it, it adds. What's the last thing that, that you were vulnerable with sharing? Oh, God. Uh, wow, that's a that's a superb question. I think my, my portraiture is always something that I, I have the, the most trepidation about because I find that it is really a joint effort and the practice that I like sharing, you know, this, there's my personal work, which is what I'm talking about now versus professional work. You know, professional work is just delivering on what the client asks for. The personal work is, me seeing how far I can push something. And so that always makes me nervous. And, and working with people, particularly when I am, I am just awed by portrait photographer, you know, photographers, people like Mark Seliger and, and, and Greg Heisler, uh, who I've come to know and, and admire, not from afar, but, you know, <laughs> close up. 
it just makes me nervous. It's like, who, who am I to think that I should even be, you know, putting this out there? But, but I have to because that's that's where the growth comes from, and that's where I need I need some level of not validation, but I want to know that I'm able to communicate what's in my head outwardly. So it's not like it's a good or bad. But did you, are you feeling what I'm feeling? You mentioned briefly working with clients and the difference there in personal work versus actually working for, with photography for your pocketbook. Um, I think a lot of photographers listening would benefit from learning from you about the difference there and the connection that you have to your personal work versus and in contrast to working with a client if you do want to make money from photography and the difference in being able to deliver what they're asking for what's that like well hopefully the clients are coming to you because they like your work and so that should be an immediate uh an immediate common factor for, for the photographers looking to monetize their work. It's like, hey, we like what you're doing. We want you to do it for us. Now here's the subject matter we want you to do it for. I, I find that I often will have clients who say, yeah, we found you, but can you do something like this? And it's like, but that's not necessarily, and, and so now I've got an instant decision to make. Do I say, yeah, I'll try that? Or do I push back and say, uh, that's not my thing. I thought, if you if you want me for me, great. If you want me to do something else, I'm not really interested. And that's where the, the pull of the pocketbook versus the, the, the personal integrity. If it's, if it's something I want to do, great. If it's something that I'm nervous about, I will, at this point in my career, which again, it's only 10 years old, I will say, I think I need to pass on it. But, um, but getting back to working with clients, I, I think it's, it all comes down to the amount of conversation you're able to have in advance because it's all about setting expectations, managing expectations, and really understanding what they have in their head. Like, what is it about the work you're seeing of mine says any of our listeners, what is it about the work that you respond to? And and now what is it that we want to bring of that to your particular assignment? And as long as you can have that conversation and as long as you're excited by it, jump in. Jump in with two feet and 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 then set about exceeding their expectations because they will respond to your enthusiasm, they'll respond to your passion and your excitement. But if they're asking you to do something that you're either not excited about, I think unless you're a really good actor, they will see that as well. And that's a recipe for not necessarily disaster, but not for a recurring relationship. Right? You might be with, go ahead. I was gonna say, was it more difficult for you in the beginning to say no to those offers though? Oh God, yeah. Oh, totally, totally. But, you know, you learn because it's like, okay, I don't think I did as good a job as they wanted because mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, because they, they asked me to do something that wasn't my thing. So I, I think it's a, it's a quick lesson everyone needs to learn. 
I think a lot of photographers, though, and you're in a, in a unique position here, Alan, of, of kind of knowing both sides of it as a as somebody who is a creative director and also who does photography and works with clients. I, I think the negotiation and the balance of not only talking about the financial part of it, but also the idea around what that client wants is really difficult for a lot of new photographers. And if you're not business minded, difficult for them to, to navigate that process. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say something that may be kind of polarizing. I would say put the business side aside for that first conversation. Just don't worry about how much money you're going to make. If you're excited about the opportunity and you're excited about the client, I would say, forget the money. Don't, I, you know, in that initial conversation, because that shouldn't enter into it. Because, you know, I don't want anyone devaluing their work or selling out. But, um, and let's let's put a pin in that for a second and come back to it. Here's a different analogy that may make a different amount of sense to people. I view marketing and photography no different than dating. And so I want everyone to remember their favorite first date and their worst first date. And on that worst first date, you have very little in common. You know, maybe they talked all about themselves and you couldn't get a word in edgewise. Now think about the photography client who's saying the same thing. And you just, you can't even, it's not a dialogue, it's a monologue. So that's not going to go well. Whereas the best first date, you had so much in common and you had ideas and you would go back and forth and exchange those things. So when you see that level of enthusiasm coming out between you and your potential client, that is worth its weight in gold because you are assured of a grip, of a better starting point than if it's just, yeah, they have money, I need money, let me do whatever they ask for. So I would always put passion and enthusiasm ahead of the dollar amount. And then once you get them excited, now think about, you know, you know, they have an amount of money in mind and it's lower than you want because you've gotten them excited when you come back with a higher rate. Now that it's like, oh, you know, I wasn't thinking I was going to spend that much, but boy, did we get along and we really hit it off and I think you get it. So, so now they're willing to pay perhaps more. So I think that's a great starting point. I really stand by that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think if we could switch gears to your photography on macro work with, with flowers, it's something that really has stood out to me from what you do. Um, what I initially thought at the beginning, and, and this question comes from personal experience of of a conversation that I had with someone when I was starting out in my photography career. So don't take offense to it. Is there a gender stigma with photographing flowers? Um, I don't know. I, I never found it. And as I teach a lot, there are a lot of male macro shooters and female macro shooters. And I don't think, I, I don't know that other than a creator's unique point of view, gender has a, has, uh, you know, has any role in it. I think 
maybe maybe my flowers are a little bit more macho than than others. I don't know. In what way? <laughs> well, um, I think there's maybe a little bit more drama, a little bit more contrast, a little bit more, you know, sort of the uh, up late I'm going through this emerging from shadows phase, I call it, you know, more darker imagery and then points of color and light. And I think it's just how I'm seeing the world right now as a result of being in New York in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and not knowing who to listen to for information. So I think that I'm feeling darkness and I think it's coming through in my work. Um, but hopefully that's just a phase because I, you know, I have, other projects in the works that are just light and colorful and, and just make me smile because they represent a contrast from other things I'm doing. Like everything is um, sort of trying to different, trying to do different things at different points in my my world because I need a I need a change. Which you know that that took me a number of years ago from like exclusively color photography to a lot of the macro work when I first picked it up to, to doing like months of just black and white macro work. And, and I think that that was a very risky move at the time. I know it, you know, you can, you can study Irving Penn and, and, and people who, who did beautiful black and white macro work. But for me, it wasn't, it wasn't something I was seeing every day. So it felt like a differentiator. But it also allowed me to look at things differently and appreciate the structure and the, and the texture and the tone, not not just the color. So for whatever it was, it took me to a different place. It triggered a different part of my my way of seeing, which then informs other things. That's and it's just fun. I you know it's fun to do something different each day of the week. You've recently taken on the task of teaching for visual wilderness and doing that via webinars. What has that process been like for you as as we were talking about before we started recording, a self-proclaimed perfectionist? Um, it is, it's, it's probably the, the scariest thing I do now is my teaching and yet I love it. I, I love talking and I love sharing. And so to say, I'm going to share everything I know for me that brings me joy with anyone who will listen and, and hope that, <laughs> and hope that someone is willing to listen, right? Not just look at something, but who wants to do this and yet so, so it's nerve wracking for me. Also, I, I never, I have a little bit of ADD, I think. Uh, and so I, I don't like sticking to a script. So I like things to be more improvisational. That is different from teachers who have rigid lesson plans. So I know how I want something to be done, but I don't believe that people should do it the same way by rote. I, you know, there are there are certain methodologies and no different than you know and, and processes that are more linear. But I believe that to experience the kind of joy that I do, I try to have it be as non-linear as possible, and so that I just worry that people, you know, can follow 
and, and aren't looking for step one followed by step two. Because sometimes I start at step 19 and then go to step seven. But that's fun. And that's, and that's where the experimentation comes in. Do you, do you think the teaching and improvisation has helped your photography? Absolutely. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Because, In what way? because I am, I am wanting to intentionally mix things up. So, Hey, let's try something new. Let's see what this does instead of just going through and doing it for myself. I'm now doing it. And, and I have, I have a real time audience. So, in, in some situations, I will literally say, okay, here's a group of images. Let's pick one to process. And, and now, you know, I will make it almost like an improv experience when you go to a comedy club, right? Like, do you want to see color black and white? Do you want to, you know, give me a, give me a vibe and let's figure it out together because I want people to see a level of experimentation that goes into how do I get from this point on process raw file? to this point, either because of something I saw, how do I make it look like a Renaissance painting? Oh, let's, let's break it down and let's figure it out together. So it's this group journey that is really exciting and very fulfilling for me. Would you encourage others to try teaching if they're afraid of it? Absolutely. I think that's, you know, what is it? You, you, um, you learn one, you do one, you teach one. Mm-hmm. is right so i think if you are if you are looking to up your game try and teach whatever your game is to someone else one it forces you to then up your game further because once you give away whatever your quote unquote secrets are you better come up with some new secrets <laughs> otherwise you're not <laughs> going to differentiate so i think that's also an interesting challenge for me you know the more of the secrets i give away i think i'm I'm now physically forcing myself to get to another level of my work, which is kind of exciting. For people who want to watch those and see you in your ADD mode teaching live without a script and improving, how can they do that? Uh, they can go to visualwilderness.com and they can find me and sign up. Uh, I, you know, we, we give courses, it seems like on a monthly basis, don't we do? Or, yeah, about. Right. So, uh, you can sign up for, for an annual subscription and get everything that David and I have, have done beforehand. And then you can just look and follow me on like Alan W. Shapiro is my Facebook and, uh, Alan Shapiro 515 is my Instagram. And you know, I am, I am trying not to be very commercial, but you will not miss a class as it's coming up because I will make sure that people know what I'm doing. So. <laughs> and where can people go to find your personal work? Uh, let's see. Alan Shapiro photography.com is my website, but I'd almost rather they go to either Facebook or Instagram. Again, Facebook is Alan W. Shapiro. Alan is A-L-A-N-W Shapiro uh, or Alan Shapiro 515 on Instagram because I like telling stories and I like writing. That's another part of my sort of creative process, my journaling. So sometimes it's very related to the imagery. Sometimes it's very inspired by the imagery. And sometimes it's just my worldview on 
events of the moment paired with images that hopefully make you smile or make you think, which is a whole other topic about why photographers should use their words. But that's a Google talk you can go find of mine from years ago. Well, he's Alan Shapiro. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Dave. Thank you.